NFL Hall of Famer Dion Primetime Sanders. He was a standout player for the Dallas Cowboys franchise a few years ago. Once boasting of his defensive coverage, he said this. He said, water covers two-thirds of the earth. I cover the rest. Egotistical remarks are routine for some professional athletes. Trash talk on and off the field. Um, one of the most skilled soccer players in the world, Cristiano Ronaldo, he's, he's linked with this quote, and it's rumored whether or not he actually said it, but it's attributed to him. He said, God sent me to earth to show everyone else how to play football. And then of his critics, he said, there are people out there who hate me, who say I'm arrogant and vain and whatever, but that's all part of my success. I am made to be the best. How important is humility to you? Or the other side of that same coin, when is it okay for a person to be arrogant? When is there an acceptable time for arrogance? The folly and error of prideful conduct becomes all the more distasteful when the situation involves beyond just the sports field, when a politician, a police officer, a parent, or even a pastor, blinded in their own pride, carries forth their responsibilities. That's when pride shows its most ugly consequences. And regardless of your own sensitivity to pride, regardless of your own awareness of it in your life or others, or your lack of awareness, it doesn't change God's disposition towards pride. God's moral stance doesn't change. God is constant and unchanging in his direct opposition to pride. And God is equally as constant in generously giving his grace and favor to the humble. So how do we remove pride from our lives? How do we get rid of pride? How do we cultivate humility? What does it even look like in our daily lives to live that way, and much less our church? How can we recognize pride and humility? Well, our passage this morning is going to answer that question for us. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 4. Chapter 5. Sorry. First Peter chapter 5. Uh, in my pride to not review my notes, I put First Peter 4. Sorry. First Peter 5, 1 through 14. In our passage this morning, it's going to show us the pitfalls of pride and the benefit humility brings. We're going to finish out the letter of First Peter this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter in its entirety. All of chapter 5. So listen along as we hear God's word. Let's read. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. My prayer this morning is that we would see how dumb and dangerous pride is. And we would see why we should cherish humility and cultivate it in our lives. How to be clothed with humility so that we might know more of his grace. Well, the main idea that Peter is, is getting at in this final chapter is that all Christians at all times, even in their trials, should be clothed with humility. It's a garment that they should wear and never take off, even in their trials. And if they do this, they will stand firm in God's grace. The structure of this passage is straightforward. The word therefore occurs one time. Did you notice where it happens? It's right there in verse 6. Therefore is this, it's this clue for us of where to divide a passage. It divides it right in the middle. There's two halves to this, this final chapter. And the word humility is used three times in the final chapter. And that word therefore cleaves off that last humility. So two of them are mentioned there in verse 5. One word of humility is mentioned in verse 6. The therefore cleaves off that last humility. So we've got two halves to chapter 5. Both halves include humility. The first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 5, it's all resting on and it's anchored in verse 5, this principle of humility. And then verse 6 lays out the second half of chapter 5. Everything flows from humility. So it's a clear division, clear structure. That structure will be the the structure of this sermon. That's the skeleton. So there's going to be two big points to this sermon. They both deal with humility. The first point, the first big idea is this. Stay humble when gathered together. So this is your life as a church. Stay humble when gathered together. This is verses 1 through 5. Second big idea we're going to consider this morning is Stay humble when scattered apart. In other words, when you're not together as a church, when you're going about daily life, stay humble when you're scattered apart. This is verses 6 through 14. And before we go into these two big ideas, we need to give a few definitions. We need to define pride clearly. We need to define humility 
humility is that one element that's holding this whole final chapter together. It's, it's keeping it together, so we need to define it and give our attention to it. So put your eyes there on the second half of verse 5. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, whenever you see the word for, it's often the reason for the logic that a writer of Scripture is giving. So everything that's said in the verses before this are hinging on this point. For the reason, and he lays out this principle, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter is drawing from Proverbs 3, 34. And often in this letter, he's used the Old Testament to be the anchor of what he's saying. It anchors his logic. So what is pride? What does it mean to be proud? What is humility? Sometimes it's easier to see it than actually have to define it, but let's define it. Pride could be defined as this. Pride is thinking too highly of self, thinking one is greater than they really are. Pride is exalting self, seeing yourself as the sun instead of being a planet in that solar system of your relationships. That's what pride is. How does pride manifest? Well, it manifests, you know this, in boastfulness, arrogance, an inflated ego, being puffed up, being haughty. I like how John Calvin wrote about this nearly 500 years ago. In his institutes, Calvin said this. He said, We always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs, we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, and impurity. And he writes in his book, The The Institutes of the Faith, he gives this example to show what he's talking about, to illustrate it. So in your mind's eye right now, picture an extremely bright, sunny day, and you're looking down at the ground, and you see blades of grass, dirt, and rocks. Just go in your mind's eye right now, just picture that. This is a, an illustration Calvin gives. He says, We might see clearly in the bright light in our survey of the ground and seem to ourselves as ones endowed with the strongest and keenest sight. We see those blades of grass, the definition, the color. Yet when we look up to the sun and gaze straight at it, the power of sight, which was particularly strong on earth, is at once blunted and confused by great brilliance. And thus we are compelled to admit that our keenness of sight in looking upon earthly things is sheer dullness when it comes to the sun. And so it happens in estimating spiritual goods. He says, quote, As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, virtue, we flatter ourselves. We flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. But suppose we begin to raise our thoughts to God and ponder his nature, how completely perfect and excellent are are his virtues, that straight edge of perfection to which we must be shaped and judged That in us which seems perfection corresponds ill to the purity of God. I love that. 
But that's what we do, isn't it? As human beings, those areas and pockets of pride in our life, they're there because we haven't estimated what God is like in relation to that. We think too highly of ourselves. God opposes pride, and that's what verse 5 tells us. God opposes that attitude and mentality and behavior because pride contends for the supremacy of God himself. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, said that pride, he defined it this way, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God, and pride is a refusal of acknowledgement of dependence on him. Do you know the areas in your life that you're prideful? You might, but I just want to go ahead and say it right from the outset. Pride by its very nature is self-deceptive. Pride is blinding. Let this passage today be a means that, that illuminates your heart and your life to see pride and identify it. Because God opposes it. And left to yourself, you can't see it. But what about humility? How would we define humility? Well, C.J. Mahaney, again, he, in his book, Humility, True Greatness, I like his definition. He said, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. But it's more than than outwardly being brought low. One other quote from an ancient theologian, and then, then we'll get into the passage. Jonathan Edwards, in 1746, his treatise on religious affections, he said this about somebody who's outwardly brought low, but inwardly they're not brought low. He talks about, evangelical humiliation and legal humiliation. The evangelical humiliation is a discovery of the beauty of God's holiness and moral perfection. The beauty and strictness of his law overcome the heart and change the inclinations of men that they are exceedingly sinful, guilty, and liable to the wrath of God, which causes them to hate unrighteousness as God hates it and love his truth. But legal humiliation? Legal humiliation is when the conscience is shown truth and men are subdued and forced to the ground. But there's no sweet yield and delight to prostrate themselves at the feet of God. So men may be legally humbled without actually having any true inward humility. There's a distinction. True inward humility is what we're after in this this passage here. We should conclude these definitions of pride and humility by just saying this. Humility is what you want. Humility is what you want because humility is a, a lightning rod for God's grace. It's a receptive posture for his favor and grace. And it's fitting because it doesn't rival him in his Supremacy. It doesn't compete with him for his glory. The Bible explodes with these implications. In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, Samuel's going to be closing out the book of Isaiah. In the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 2, it says this. God declares, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite 
and trembles at my word. Micah 6.8 tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? That's what God is after. So this morning, I want to remind you of the gospel. Because in our pride, we think life is about us or we can handle it on our own. Even though we were made in God's image and created as vessels of glory for him to bear his image, we've gone our own way. We've reflected our own loves and hates and preferences rather than what God loves and hates and prefers. And rather than worshiping him and loving him and serving him, all the joy that's bound up in that, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped creatures, even our own self, in place of the Creator. And because God is good, and because God opposes that pride, He will punish and bring wrath on all those who are prideful. So without Christ, we have no hope. But because He loves us, God sent Christ to live a life of perfect humility, trusting the Father, relying upon Him at all times. And Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many on the cross. His blood was poured out. God put his wrath on his son there so that anyone, any of you, who turn from their sin and trust in God in humility, renouncing your own pride, trusting in his sacrifice, you can come to know God. And you don't have to wonder whether or not that's true. God raised Jesus from the dead Proving this was an acceptable sacrifice. And he invites all of us to trust more and more in that gospel and live in it. So if you're not a believer this morning, that's the main message of the Bible. This stuff that we're looking at in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, it, it has implications for the Christian, but it all flows out of that gospel. So to, to look back at our chapter for a moment, these two big points, humility when we're gathered together and scattered apart. Why would Peter write chapter 5 when he ended chapter 4, verse 19, on such a poetic, perfect way, it seems like? Did you see how chapter 4 ended? He had talked about suffering, and he said, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's the high point, it seems, of the letter. What's this extra part in chapter 5? Well, if you remember, these scattered Christians are suffering under the weight of trials. And the very last thing they need is God to oppose them as their own suffering and trials and culture seems to oppose them. The last thing they need is for God to not be giving them grace and helping them. And their pride puts a stiff arm to God's grace and says, I don't need it. But Peter's writing this letter that they would stand in his grace, so he has to end the letter showing how choice and good humility is. Okay, so let's cover these two big points now. We'll spend a little bit more time on the first big point, humility while we're gathered together, and we'll move a little bit quicker through the second big idea. So this first idea, verses 1 through 5, stay humble when we're gathered together. Let's read again verses 1 through 5. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as we're gathered together as a church, there's instruction for leaders, elders, and there's instructions for those who are led, everyone else in the congregation. So let's look at this here. Peter turns his attention first to the elders there in verse 1. And in the face of hostility and threats, these elders, these leaders, they would have a real temptation to to swerve off course and clothe themselves in pride and self-reliance instead of humbleness. We can use various terms to describe elder. We could say pastor. We could say overseer. We could say shepherd. The New Testament teaches us this, Acts 20, Titus. But for our purposes this morning, we need to just focus in on the fact that although there's different terms, Peter takes the term for himself. He doesn't talk down to them as if, I'm an apostle, you all need to listen to what I'm saying. Peter, in humility, gets shoulder to shoulder with these leaders, and he takes that term, elder, and he says there in verse 1, I am a fellow elder among you. What does he say to them? Well, what he says here is not so much what Paul would say in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus, where you've got all these almost bullet point listings of good character and being above reproach. Here, Peter lays out the actual function and task of a shepherd and the manner in which they carry it out. So here's what he says. Verse 2. This is essential for us to know. Verse 2. This is the two-beat rhythm of the primary task of a pastor. It's stated right there in verse 2. Shepherding the flock of God and exercising oversight. We need this. As pastors, we need this. It's Samuel, Ryan, and I. We can't just think, well, we're going to pastor however we want to. God tells us how to shepherd. You need this as a church member to know what a pastor is supposed to be doing so there's no confusion. You need this, just as we heard about another church in town that's looking for a pastor, Kenny Avenue. They need this. You need it, I need it, other churches need it. But not just for accountability, for knowing what a pastor should do. You need this, brothers and sisters, to know how to pray for your pastors. Look at verses 2 and 3 as a prayer list of what you lift up and ask God to do in the hearts of your pastors. And use this to pray for other churches. Let's look there in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's what the authority of being an elder entails, shepherding and oversight. There's overlap to these terms. And what Peter says that an elder does toward the flock in shepherding, it was straightforward for these people. They lived in an agrarian society. They knew what shepherds did. 
Shepherds ensure their flocks are well fed. So much of their role is about finding good pasture, feeding them. They're to feed them with the word of God. 1 Peter 4.11, earlier in the letter, he said, if you speak, if that's the way you serve and lead, which a pastor does in many ways, you should speak oracles of God. In other words, a pastor feeds their flock not with their own opinions, not with just whatever's culturally relevant and savvy. They feed the flock with oracles, with the word of God. And a shepherd does more than feed. A shepherd tends to the flock. A shepherd cares for the flock. A shepherd seeks out the strays of a flock and heals the sick and strengthens the weak and the injured. Watches over and protects the flock. This image was basic and plain to all those who would hear this letter. God has always thought it best to have shepherds over his people. Can you think right now of that principle playing out in the Old Testament? Has God always cared about having shepherds for his people? Yes, he has. Moses was a shepherd, literally, before God called him at the burning bush. And God spoke to him to lead his people out of Egypt. And before his death, when Joshua was was coming up in leadership, before his death, Moses says in Numbers 27, 17, Lord, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them and lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. David was a shepherd, literally, before he was a shepherd of God's people. Doesn't mean you have to literally be a shepherd to be a pastor. But it does mean if you are a pastor or an elder, you adopt the mindset that the human beings you see in your church are God's human sheep that you care for. This is a clear Old Testament pattern. But how would Peter know that it applies to them now? That's the Old Testament. Is is anything different now that Christ has been revealed in the gospel? Are people more self-reliant because they've they've seen Christ? Well, it's an Old Testament pattern, but pattern, but clearly Peter knows it's meant for them now because Peter would have heard in his own ears what Christ said in John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus identifies himself as a shepherd. And then to seal it even further and drive the nail deeper. You remember how Peter was restored after he denied Christ in John 21? He's there at that first breakfast on the beach. Three times Jesus says to him, do you love me? Affirmative, three times. Yes, Lord, I do. Three times in a row the Lord says, okay, feed my lambs. Tend my flock. Feed my sheep. So for Peter, it was crystal clear that the risen Christ is ascending to be with the Lord, but he's not leaving his people without a shepherd. His own ministry and all those who would come after him as leaders in the church would be a means, would be under shepherds to care for the flock as Christ appointed. How are shepherds supposed to labor? What's the manner that they carry out their shepherding? It tells us there in verses 2 and 3. Elders must shepherd without pride, but care and serve in humility. 
Peter gives a series of contrasts highlighting the manner of which they should and should not work. So positively there, do you see the positive aspects in verse 2 and 3? The humble fruit of an elder being faithful is shown in their willingness, their eagerness, their understanding themselves to be an example to the flock. Humble pastors understand that their example commends their teaching. It's life-giving, is it not, to have pastors who are willing and eager and they desire to be an example? After 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where, where Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. A mature Christian wants there to be leaders in their life who they can see more of Christ in their life example. But pastors are human. They're not prone to uh, immune, be immune to pride. Pastors are just men. Did you see there the negative manner in which a pastor could carry out his task? The noble task is compromised negatively when pride takes root and manifests in an elder living in pride. It says there in verse 2, look at that word, the first negative aspect, compulsion. Not under compulsion. This is feeling forced or feeling obligated into the work. Feeling like you have no choice. Second negative there, seeking shameful gain. This might be money, reputation, influence, or or the numbers of sheep that are coming or going from a church. Shameful gain is, is not the manner to go about pastoring. And then there's one more, is there not? Domineering. Not domineering over those in your charge. This is a a grabbing control harshly, a power lust, seeking to subdue others by forcing them to your ways harshly. So on the one hand, a pastor could feel boxed in by something outside of him, external to him, that's making him feel under compulsion to carry out his task. The reverse of that, though, is a pastor who, not from outside of him, but within him, he is going to force others and make others in compulsion follow him. And then in between those two, there's the temptation of a pastor in pride to go for shameful gain. Peter touches on so many different areas. He doesn't want a pastor to run roughshod over the sheep, harming them, harming his own life and the flock. Humility is what's going to breathe life and health into a pastor's soul and the flock. I wonder how many of you can testify to the consequences of pastors who don't live this way. I wonder how many of you could tell stories to one another over lunch of the ways pastors have swerved off course and been characterized by these prideful ways. May it not be. I think there's four ways here or clues that a pastor can avoid these things. So in this this next moment, I want to speak directly to Samuel, directly to Ryan, directly to myself, directly to any pastor who would listen, and directly to you if you interact with other pastors or if you pray for them or if you talk to them. Here are four ways from this part of the passage pastors can kill pride and cultivate humility. Four ways. Number one, a pastor 
ought to maintain a close, personal walk with God. Because pastors are sheep, too. How do I know that? Verse 4. Verse 4 talks about a chief shepherd. So pastors are not shepherds who don't need a shepherd as well. So a pastor in pride, if he thinks he doesn't need to be fed and led by Christ, will become arrogant and haughty, puffed up. So one way to cultivate humility is to maintain a close, personal walk with God. Number two, a pastor should continually remind themselves that it's not their flock. It's God's flock. Did you see that in verse 2? Shepherd the flock of the elders? No, it says shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Brother pastors, continually remind your hearts that anyone you look at here at Park Hills, or any church for that matter, doesn't belong to that pastor. It belongs to the Lord. Number three, pastors should routinely discern their level of willingness for the task as God would have them. This is also in, uh, in verse 2 there. They're to be doing their job willingly, and it says, as God would have them. This is not some kind of personality trait that's negotiable. Willingness is supposed to be in the pastorate. So, brother pastors, examine your heart, and even though your willingness might ebb and flow, go to the Lord in prayer, because as Acts 20, 28 says, shepherd the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. If God has made you overseers, God can give you the willingness. Pray to him for it. Keep a close watch on your heart. And if your willingness wanes, deal with that. Because prideful ways will, will offer you other paths of willingness. Number four, pastors should trust the wisdom of a plurality of elders. Trust the wisdom of shared authority. We see this in verse 1. Did you see that little letter after the word elder? It's the letter S. Plurality of elders is the pattern in the New Testament. Acts 14.23 is crystal clear on that. So brother pastors, give regular thanks to God. <laughs> I'm going to tear up if I, if I look at you in the face too long. Uh, give regular thanks to God that that you're not alone. I've heard so many pastors tell me uh, the temptations that they face when they're alone. I've also seen the damaging effects of pride of pastors who shepherd alone. Pastors need other pastors. One way to kill pride and cultivate humility is to thank God for the other men that you, you labor with if you're a pastor. And to thank God and be grateful even to your congregation. How often does the congregation hear you thanking God for the other elders that you work with and the other eldering work that you see done among those who aren't even recognized yet as elders? That will cultivate humility. So elders tend the flock in humbleness. That's what they do. And verse 4 is so fitting because the chief shepherd, 
the chief overseer, Christ himself, as Peter already alluded to in chapter 2, verse 25, this chief shepherd is the one who pastors look for for their chief motivation. They don't look for immediate success. In Peter's day, uh, a lot of commentators mention this, in Peter's day, uh, those who would win a military victory or a, a sporting athletic competition, they'd receive this wreath made of leaves, some other organic material. It would just fade away. But here, did you notice it's a crown that doesn't fade? This is the crown given to faithful shepherds. Pray for your pastors that they would live this. But it's not just for pastors. The verse keeps going there. Verse 5. There's another component to our life gathered together in humility, and that is not just for the leaders, but those who are led. So if you consider yourself a church member, if you know yourself to not be a pastor, take close attention here. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That word for subject or submit, Peter's already been talking about it in chapter 2 when he talked about in submission to the governing authorities. He talked about submission in the home. He's already made clear what this means. But notice this first category of church member that he's thinking of who might have a hard time battling against pride. It's the young. We don't know if this is age or spiritual maturity. We're not, we're not clear. We could go either way on it. But either way you take that, the young are prone to be headstrong and, and bucket authority, especially the need for God's gracious pattern of elders in their life. Some sheep might feel that they don't need a shepherd. They might think they can handle life on their own. That's not the pattern of God here. An expression of humility is to follow and submit to your elders. Humility chooses that path. Perhaps this is why so many college students don't want to be church members. Just asking. College students, this semester, ask your fellow college peers who are not members of churches, ask them, hey, how do you understand yourself to be obeying 1 Peter 5, 5? Just help me understand how you're obeying that. And then God help you wherever the congregation, or wherever the conversation goes. Your congregation is here to pick up the pieces if that conversation doesn't go well. Uh, But challenge your friends with that, that thought, okay? Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. That'd be of no advantage to you. So this is true for the young, but it's true for everyone. Did you see that there in verse 5? He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humility is not this one-way street that you give to your leaders and elders and pastors. Humility is something you showcase to everyone in your midst. Some Christians find no problem submitting to their pastors. They might even look up to them. But the rub comes in when they have to be humble towards others that they might think that they're better than or further along than spiritually or they've been a member longer than the church. 
five ways that you can cultivate humility. If you're a church member, here we go. Five things you could do. Number one, expect to learn from other members of your church, not only your pastors. Expect to learn from other members of your church, not just your pastors. I'm getting this from Romans 15, 14, where Paul said, I'm satisfied about you, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So learn from one another. It's a sign of humility. Number two, confess your sins often. Pray prayers of confession. Pray the Lord's Prayer, even. You know how the Lord's Prayer starts out, hallowed be your name? It's this recognition of God's holiness. Later on in the prayer, it says, forgive us our debts or our trespasses. It's this recognition of of our sinfulness. What a prayer that should bridle our heart away from pride. Ask yourself, church member, how often am I praying prayers that confess my sins to God? Doing that will help you cultivate humility. Number three, look for ways to serve others that are not convenient and glamorous, but very useful to someone else. Look for ways to serve others that are not convenient and glamorous to you, but would be useful to others for their well-being. In John 13, verse 14, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You're not blessed just because you heard it in a sermon. You're not blessed because you think it's a good idea. You're not blessed because you tell others about the other people you see serving. You're blessed in the doing of humble tasks yourself. Number four, be one who speaks often of the things you are thankful and grateful for to other members. Thankfulness and gratitude is a soil that pride doesn't easily grow in. C.J. Mahaney mentioned that in his book, Humility, True Greatness. Do members hear more of what you'd like to see happening or what you're curious to see happening or what you're upset about? Or do they hear more about what you're thankful for, thankful of, what you're grateful for? And then number five, look for evidences of grace and growth in other members around you. Be on the lookout for how God is working in other people's character and their lives and providing for them and be vocal about it. Doing these things, it's not an exhaustive list, but doing these will help us cultivate humility and kill pride. Healthy Christians understand that this humble way of interacting with the local church brings an infusion of God's grace into their life. But Peter knows as often as we're gathered together, and we love that, there's all these other times where we're scattered apart, our daily life, the daily grind. So that's the second half of this chapter. We'll move through this quickly here. The second big point, stay humble when you're scattered apart. It's verses 6 through 14. So he touches here on timing, anxieties, temptations, spiritual attack, trials and suffering. We encounter all of these things when we're not gathered together. 
Let's look at verse 6. Let's begin reading there. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. So the lens of pride and humility is helpful as we consider these verses because the way verse 6 started is humble yourselves under God's hand and then everything flows from that. So first, timing. Look at the timing there in verse 6. Pride hates to wait patiently. Pride says it's my timetable, not God's. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Yes, you may have insight of what you think should happen or what righteousness should happen, but you don't always know the time that it's meant to happen. God does. It says there, at the proper time, he may exalt you, not yourself. He may exalt you. For these Christians, Peter knows that they're in trials and difficulty and hardship. They would want to prematurely get out of things. It would be hard to trust God's timing for deliverance, trust his timing to put them into a more favorable position. So these Christians that he's writing to and us today have to remember that one manifestation of pride, one area of our hearts, is those areas where we hate to wait. The next time you hate to wait for something, begin to ask the Lord why you hate to wait and let those areas of pride rise to the surface. But what about anxiety? It's not just areas of timing that pride shows up. Humility is needed, but in our anxiety. Pride hates to let something go. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This verse is precious and useful to these believers and to you and me, brothers and sisters. Life is full of stress and anxiety. In fact, some Christians could have put up their hand and said, Peter, I'm really stressed because you just told me all these things that seem to be coming at me that are going to harm me. These things people are saying, the hostility of the culture. Peter's been cluing them in to all the threats and hostility around them. But even though Peter knows this might cause anxiety, he's not done with the letter. He tells them, here's what you do with your anxiety. Verse 7, cast it on the Lord. Peter's not afraid he's giving them too much that they can't bear by telling them how the world really is. He wants them to cast that anxiety to the Lord. Doesn't he know they're not going to be able to sleep at night with all the things raging on outside? Well, he knows they're going to sleep at night because they're going to cast their anxieties on the Lord. Doesn't he know there's, there's young mothers in the midst of these scattered Christians who have probably more stress and anxiety on their plate than anyone else? Yeah, he does. So he says, cast that anxiety on the Lord. Doesn't he know there would be families stressed out about how they're going to provide for their bills, their needs in the midst of all this hostile culture? He does. So he says, cast your anxieties on the Lord. 
The only reason we would hold on to our anxieties is by the invitation of pride. That's the only reason we hang on to it. But God knows that we're not able to carry our anxieties. They will corrode our hearts. They will eat away at us. So cast it all on the Lord. We do this by prayer. Prayer is how we cast our anxieties on the Lord. We do this because God cares for us. Just like a parent cares for their child, the parent doesn't want the child to carry burdens and griefs that they shouldn't. The parent is willing to take the grief and anxiety off their child's shoulders. And in this letter, Peter has already told them that their father, their father, verse 17 of chapter 1, their father judges impartially. They should cast their anxieties to their dad. His shoulders are broad enough to carry our anxieties. His shoulders were broad enough for the cross. He can handle whatever stress you've got going on. This is how Jesus lived, is it not? Remember Jesus in the garden before his, his trial and his, his death on the cross? What was he doing? He was casting any anxiety that would try to weigh on him to the Lord. And he did so with drops of blood. He sweat drops of blood. I'm not saying that it's going to feel comfortable to pray and cast your anxieties on the Lord. I'm just saying that's the antidote. That's the remedy to you carrying it. So be raw and honest with the Lord. When you cast your anxieties on him, you might sweat drops of blood while you do it, but God's going to take that anxiety off of your shoulders. So not just timing and anxiety, though. What about the anxiety of spiritual attack, a unique type of anxiety that we feel? How could we have humility instead of pride here? Well, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So this is one area our anxiety shows up. Peter is showing here the dangerous nature of our foes, of our enemy. He knows this because in the Old Testament, the psalmist would often picture enemies as, as a lion. It says in Psalm 22, verse 13 and 21, They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Verse 21 of that same psalm. Save me from the mouth of the lion. So this image of our adversary being a lion, it's helpful and it's clear. It clues us into the dangerous nature of our foes. Peter doesn't want these believers to ignore that danger. In humility, he tells them what to do there in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. That's how we resist him, as verse 9 says. James said this in his letter. When James said to resist the devil, there's a verse right before that that's the same quotation of Proverbs 3.34 about humility and pride. There's a link, there's a connection between if we're pride-filled, we think we're okay against spiritual attack. We think it's not as bad as it really is. If we're filled with humility... We recognize the real danger of our enemy, and we stay sober-minded. We stand firm in God's grace. The danger to the Christian, as Edmund Clowney said, the danger to the Christian is not that he will fail to resist, but he'll fail to watch and pray, which is the resisting. 
How important is humility to you? Well, if you have a lapse in humility, you are vulnerable then to spiritual attack. Peter, in pride, let his own guard down. He wielded the sword of self-reliance in the Garden of Gethsemane. He denied Christ three times. And then perhaps for the rest of his life, every time he would hear that rooster crow, it would pinch his pride again, reminding him, pride is not how you're going to advance the kingdom. Be humble, be watchful, be prayerful, be alert. And Peter finishes out the chapter here talking about trials again. He says there in in verse 9, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Pride makes us believe that no one else is going through what I'm going through. No one else has encountered this situation ever before in the same way. That's pride telling you that. Pride tells you your situation is so unique. But humility gets you out of that self-absorbed view and shows you you're not isolated in what's happening to you. There's other brothers and sisters around the world experiencing what you are. Humility would help them see this. And then in verse 10, he shows one final note about humility. He says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter is saying here that your pride makes your trials seem longer than they really are. In humility, consider that God is going to restore everything and make it right in the end. If you didn't lose anything, there'd be nothing for God to restore. If you didn't have slanderous things said about you, there'd be nothing to confirm. If you weren't made weak by your trials, he would have no need to strengthen you. And if your fears and your legacy seem to be washed away, he'd have no reason to establish you. God's going to make everything right in the end. He concludes his letter by saying, Stand firm in this true grace. In a humble close, in a humble greeting, he mentions Silvanus and Mark. He talks about Silvanus' faithfulness. He was likely the one who handed this letter or wrote it as Paul, as Peter spoke it. And then Mark, he's humble because he's not thinking of his own thoughts, he's thinking of Mark's thoughts. Mark wants to send greetings. That reference to Babylon there, that's that's just a reference to Rome. Babylon being the seat of of pride and opposition against God and his rule. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. This is where Peter's writing from, so he referenced it, Babylon. But his purpose in all this is right there in verse 12. He wants to exhort and declare this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You can't stand in grace if you're proud because God opposes the proud. If you're humble, It invites God's grace. You can stand clothed in humility. Let's do that in our trials. For Christ's glory.